Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Hey church, it's Katie, (laughs) she, her. I'm reading the gospel for tonight, and I want to say a word before the scripture comes up, though, that we are entering now into our Eastertide worship series. So Easter is a season. Maybe uh, you know that we're, you know, last Sunday was technically the first Sunday of Easter. Today is the second Sunday of Easter. And so while we celebrate through the season of Eastertide, we're in a worship series called Breathing Together, the Co-Conspiracy. And we're talking over these next several weeks about what the co-conspiracy of Galileo Church is, what it means. Um, You might know about this church that we have avoided the traditional language and format of membership uh, in terms of a model of belonging to a church. You know, uh, membership is just a, a weird concept for a church. You can be a member of a club, you can be a member of Amazon Prime, Um, You know, it has to do with like a transactional kind of relationship. I give some money and I get some benefits. And church membership is kind of weird because once you say yes to that, it's kind of perpetual. It's like forever. Even if you change significantly, even if your life circumstances change quite a lot, you just stay on the membership roles forever. That membership model, in my experience, doesn't always reflect real relationship, no bullshit ever. So when our church was seeking for a way to um, commit ourselves deeply to the mission of Galileo Church, we came up with this language of the co-conspiracy, which we say yes to for one year at a time, just one year at a time, from Pentecost to Pentecost on the church calendar. Every year, all of us, myself included, consider again whether we can, for the coming year, agree to prioritize the mission of Galileo Church, which means that if you've been around for a while, you've moved in and out of the co-conspiracy. You know that you don't have to actively say no to get out of it. It just dissolves for everyone a year from the time you say yes. But if after that year you don't actively say yes again, we just take that to mean that you're not in a place to do that this year, and that's okay. What does the co-conspiracy mean concretely if you say yes? Well, that's what we'll be talking about over the next several weeks. It means for us all together that we sort of know who we can count on, you know, to be around and contribute actively to the life of the church and support our missional priorities. It's like, yeah, we say these are the people who have made a commitment to prioritize the mission of this church. We sort of have that, that list in our minds. For each of us individually, It means that for the year in which we've said yes, we are dedicating ourselves to Christian discipleship in several intentional ways. And we have named seven practices or habits of the co-conspiracy. And I think Brenda's gonna put a link in the chat uh, so that you can see what those are. There's a document that that talks a lot about this. There's a QR code on those lime green squares uh, on the tables out among you in the big red barn if you want to take a look at the space on our website where the co-conspiracy is discussed and you'll see those seven habits of the co-conspiracy listed. And we'll be exploring them all one at a time over the next six Sundays starting tonight. We're not going to do the first one, contemplate your baptism, 
because we worked on that extensively earlier this year in a whole worship series of its own called Deep Water. You can find sermons and uh, all the accompanying materials on our website if you want to take a look at that again. So we got six of those left, and right up until Pentecost, we'll be looking at those habits. Um, and on Pentecost, that'll be the day that we all have a chance to say yes for the first time for some of you or all over again um, for some of us. We're going to let the Gospel of Luke guide our thoughts on those practices, and that means that we're starting tonight uh, with Luke 7, 36 through 8, 3, and the first of the practices we'll be talking about tonight is the sharing of material resources to further the church's goals. I know it's kind of a cruel joke that, like, if you're one of the hardcore people who showed up on the Sunday after Easter and we're going to do the money sermon, like, how rude is that? It's just... That's just the order in which it came up, okay? <laughs> Hang in there. Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus to dinner saw that, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence... She has shown great love, but the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the reign of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Tithing is stupid. 
Allow me to elaborate. The teaching of the church that all faithful followers of Jesus should give 10%, that's what tithing technically means, giving a tenth, from Old English, teotha. That all faithful followers of Jesus should give 10% of their income to the church is stupid. To be more precise, anachronistic, that is insensitive to the massive overhaul of the economic context in which the original instructions for tithing were given and thus mercilessly out of sync with the lived reality of Jesus' followers today. Let me make the argument. The instructions for tithing derive mostly from the book of Deuteronomy, which includes a couple of extensive discourses about how the economy of our ancient ancestors in faith ought to work. Deuteronomy, I know you'll remember, is the fifth book of the Torah, the religious law, and it has an imagined setting of Moses giving one last long sermon to the Israelites before they cross over the River Jordan into the promised land. Now, I say imagined setting because Deuteronomy was actually composed and compiled hundreds of years after Israel's occupation of Palestinian land while the Israelites were in exile in Babylon following the fall of Jerusalem. While in exile, with no temple and no priesthood and no right to religious expression, the exiled faithful got super serious about recording their oral oral traditions, the collective memories passed down through generations of how God and God's people had interacted in the past. One of the things they remembered from their halcyon days of settling in the fertile plains between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River was how fair everything once was. Their ancestors had taken a huge census, counting every man and his descendants. The census is recorded in the book of Numbers. And then according to that census, the acreage of the conquered territory was apportioned out family by family, patriarch by patriarch, so that everyone got their fair share for farming and flock management. The land was ready to yield nourishment. All they had to do was work what they were given. Deuteronomy acknowledges that not everyone got a share of that landscape. Whole categories of people were left out of the divvying up. Widows, for one, meaning women whose husbands had died, they didn't have inheritance rights. Aliens, for two, meaning non-Israelites, non-citizens, immigrants even, who lived among the chosen people, didn't have ownership rights. And the whole tribe of Levi, one of Jacob's sons, the Levite tribe set aside for the priesthood, for service in the temple, they didn't get any land either as they were meant to remain unencumbered by the demands of working the land so that they could serve without interruption in their religious duties. So in God's economy, as explained in Deuteronomy, 
a new practice developed. Everyone with land brought 10% of their produce, flock or crop, to the priests so that it could be divvied out to the widows, the aliens, and the priests themselves. See, that's how they made it fair, even for the people who didn't have acreage. And it was super fair because every family bringing 10% was bringing roughly the same amount because, well, they all got the same allotment of land in the first place. And that, in a nutshell, is how the practice of tithing or 10% giving was established. Here's something important to know about Jesus and the Gospels and the whole rest of the New Testament. Tithing, or that super fair practice of giving 10% so that everyone has enough, is almost never mentioned. Not by Jesus, not by Paul, the church's first theologian. Okay, well, there was this one time that Jesus poked fun at the VRPs, the very religious persons, for tithing their herbs and spices. In Matthew 23, 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. And I always imagine the temple treasurer wiping sweat from his brow in relief when Jesus throws in without neglecting the others. I mean, in other words, do justice and mercy and faith and also keep tithing your stuff. Because no doubt, by Jesus' day, as in ours, the religious establishment was entirely supported by the financial gifts of the faithful. Those VRPs giving 10% of the contents of even their spice rack were the most important income stream for temple and synagogue, as well as the livelihood of the priests and rabbis who served them. But it's also the case that by Jesus' time, the remembered-slash-imagined deuteronomistic economy where every family had a fair portion of land on which to make their living, as long as by fair they meant every family that conformed to the heterosexist patriarchy, well, that economy was long gone. After multiple occupations by invading armies, geopolitical Israel no longer existed, and now Rome owned all the land everywhere. In the parable that Jesus tells at Simon the Pharisee's dinner party in Luke 7, he uses an economic framework of credit and debt, the lending and repayment of loans, and the crushing load of debt that is simply too heavy to repay. Acknowledging serious financial differences in the circumstances of his religious kin. It's worth noting that the little mini plot of his parable is not about the borrowing of money, but about the forgiving of debt. A gracious creditor wipes the slate clean for two debtors. Debt forgiveness is not a new idea, church. It is an old one that should be practiced more by people who claim to follow Jesus' teachings. 
In another version of this anointing Jesus with sweet-smelling ointment story, it is the disciples who complain about the woman's extravagant gesture. The ointment is expensive, they say. She should have sold it and given the money to the poor, which is interesting on a lot of levels. But for our purposes today, it's an acknowledgement that in Jesus' time, the wealth gap was wide and the economy favored the rich and nobody had the will to solve poverty systemically and charity was the weak but necessary response of the compassionate. Sound familiar? I'm just gonna say that again. In Jesus' time, the wealth gap was wide. The economy favored the rich. Nobody had the will to solve poverty systemically and charity was the weak but necessary response of the compassionate. So I think it's no wonder that Jesus did not teach the tithe as he preached the good news of God's reign to the marginalized, the outcast, the sinners, and apparently women whom he assumed to possess moral agency sufficient to become his disciples on their own if they wanted to. He did not include a unit on stewardship in his reign of God curriculum. Unless you count his blessings of the poor and cursing of the rich in Luke's Sermon on the Plain, or his instructions to a rich man to divest himself of all his capital and redistribute his wealth to the poor, or that time he spied on people putting money into the temple treasury, commenting on their generosity or lack thereof, commending the poorest widow for her tiny gift, more valuable, he said, than all the fat checks from the big spenders at the top of the food chain. And so I think it's no wonder that the apostle Paul, for all his ballsiness in telling new Christians what to do, never once mentioned tithing as a practice of the faithful. Oh, sure, he asked Christians in one part of the world to send money to another place that was suffering a famine. And he hollered like hell when he heard about churches where rich people got more communion food and drink than the not-so-rich people. And he was not embarrassed about receiving financial aid himself when he was in prison, unable to work, but needing the first-century equivalent of Uber Eats to supply his own food each day. But that... 10% giving thing was never Paul's solution to those economic problems. Rather, Paul said that when the spirit of the living Christ inhabits his followers, it makes them, among other things, generous. Generous, meaning people who give and feel good about it, whose impulse is to open their hands and release resources for the good of this world God still loves. Generous, like Jesus was generous, sharing what he had, making sure everyone was fed, encouraging everybody else to do the same. Like those women who followed him around, according to Luke 8, the ones he talked to like they were real human beings, the ones whose names we know and many more whose names we don't. Susanna, Joanna, 
Mary of Magdala, that woman crying on his feet, they gave generously from their resources to honor his way of being in the world and to ensure that the world could have more of that, more Jesus, more healing and health, more full bellies and strong bodies, more forgiveness and blessedness, more liberation from the forces that bound people up and kept them down, more of everything that makes life beautiful. Susanna and Joanna and Mary and the foot-bathing women wanted more of that, and they were willing to pay for it. It was Jesus inspiring, inspiriting their generosity, just as the spirit of the living Christ inspires our generosity, Paul said. Now hang on just a minute, you might be protesting. Isn't it just the same thing, religion asking for my money, whether they say tithing or generosity? I mean, aren't they still going to pass those baskets around in a little while and ask me what I've given to the church and to the world in the week just past? Yeah, yeah, kind of. But, but no, not really. Because I've come to understand that the teaching of the tithe, well, it's like a flat tax. It assumes that 10% from everyone is fair for everyone. And it might have been back in the Deuteronomy days where everyone started from the same baseline of land ownership. But I know now that my 10% today, it costs me a lot less than 10% cost back when I was a student. You know what I mean? when I was working the gig economy for hourly wages and very low pay, when I was borrowing money to stay afloat, when I was relying on the generosity of my family of origin for way longer than I like to remember. What would be more fair, more merciful, more tuned in to the way our economy works now might be to give people guidelines for their generosity that acknowledge the wealth gap and the systemically unequal starting lines and, frankly, the different circumstances of our financial lives. For example, get out your phone if you want to and Google green bottle sliding scale. You can do it right now. Lydia's gonna throw up a slide of the green bottle sliding scale in case you're not in a Google mood right now. But if you're on your phone taking a look, just find that image of three or four glass bottles, the first glass bottle full of green liquid and the last one, whether there are three or four, nearly empty. And if you're on your phone, just be amazed with me at how many service providers out there in the world are asking people to consider how much they can reasonably pay for services, from midwifery to tarot card readings, from legal counsel to film festival tickets, based on those green bottles. And this, this sliding scale is not based on the hard number of your household income, you see? It's based on the life you are living in today's real economy. 
So the full green bottle is for people like me. It's for people who have a steady salaried job and can take a vacation every year without losing income, who have reliable housing and transportation, who have some savings and some expendable income and some healthcare access and not too much debt. The half full green bottle is for people who are meeting their basic needs. They have a job, but also some stress around debt. They don't take a vacation every year. They don't feel entirely safe or stable, financially speaking. The almost empty green bottle is for people who don't always achieve their basic needs, who are burdened by debt, who have unstable housing and unreliable transportation, including, in some models, not being able to afford gas, and who are unemployed or underemployed. Businesses and service providers that use the green bottle sliding scale or some variation thereof set fees according to people's self-assessment of their financial stability using the descriptions on the bottles. And it, it is always made clear that people drinking from the first bottle are subsidizing the care of those drinking from the last bottle. What if the church applied the same standard to our encouragement of generosity instead of teaching the tithe? <laughs> Be as generous as you can, we would say, empowered by the spirit of the living Christ to release resources for the good of the whole church and the world God still loves according to your circumstances. Take a look at your financial life. Find your level of stability and thus your level of giving and be joyful in your sharing of what you have so that all of us can rejoice together in God's provision for our communal life. The people drinking from the fullest bottle, I'm saying, would have left the tithe behind long ago as they give more and more according to their plenty and their privilege and their plain old good luck. And the people drinking from that last bottle would be proud to share at a level somewhere behind the traditional 10% teaching, having been set free from the strictures of an outdated flat tax system having been seen by their church as those whom Jesus blessed and who can be generous even when they don't match the old expectations. And thus the body of Christ, now us, right? The body of Christ, now the church, would receive the anointing of those who have been forgiven much or forgiven little, and those who have been blessed with plenty or blessed with just enough, all of us together celebrating that God has always made provision for everyone, no matter the economic system in which we labor, if only we are ready to make God's dream of equity come true. May it be so in the co-conspiracy of Galileo Church. 
Amen. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.